Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, welcome to Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean. Carlos, it's uh, it's good to be back. We we missed last week. I don't know what you were doing. I was ready, waiting for you, and you, you never showed up. What, what happened? No, I was waiting for you at the airport. I think you were in Fiji or Hawaii or what What exotic locale were you at, Sean? Oh, Los Angeles, uh, hanging out with my, my son and his uh, girlfriend who lives out there, and then a couple other friends and including a couple of former freepers uh just a nice little break while my my wife Anne was in morocco with her sisters kind of a lifelong that, dream that's trip. how far she has to go to get away from you is that what you're saying she has to go like across the whole ocean and well no that's not that morocco is not that far from us uh, no it's she should probably have to go a lot further than that to get away from me so you know what i mean but uh no it's 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 good to be back you had a good week I did, yeah. I missed you, Sean. It was, it was, it was so many things to talk about, and I, I was like, "Oh, this would be a good topic for the podcast. This would be a good topic to, for the podcast." And you know, lo and behold, I'm sure we're going to talk about basketball no matter what when you come back. No, no, and I see you got your golf out of the system, so hopefully you can quit telling Tiger <laughs> Tiger when to retire and telling people that uh, the the PGA Tour needs Phil Mickelson. I think that's enough golf for a while. Is is that, is that fair? Oh, there's there is a buttload of golf coming, my friend. You just wait. You you haven't you ain't seen nothing yet, buddy. Well, let's ask our. How, how about we talk to our, our our first guest about golf and see and see what she how, thinks. You know, she's a big golfer. Oh, I'm sure she's a huge. <laughs> I'm sure she's a huge golfer. But Carlos, we, we got we got a good show, an interesting show today. We have uh, Lindsey Green, the Free Press restaurant uh, critic and, and food writer. Who wrote a really, really good piece, interesting piece, um, recently about the Detroit, the lack of diversity in Detroit's uh, dining scene, and it is specifically among with, with with diners in the restaurants, and uh, that went a little bit viral. And she's going to talk about that, and uh, hopefully, maybe give us a suggestion at the end of her, at the end of her uh, segment here. And then we're going to have Omari Sankofa, our uh, our talented young, and yes, he's young. Pistons beat writer to talk about the Pistons lottery luck. Um, and then, you know, we'll listen to your favorite thing and we'll get out of here. Does that sound good? Perfect. Let's do it. Oh, okay. But let's uh, let's welcome in Lindsay. Um, thanks for taking the time to join us. You're becoming a regular here, Lindsay. I know. It's, uh, it's I kind of love you. it. Thanks for having me back. So let, let me let me just let's just start out with the with the, the piece that you wrote. Um, and I, I'm curious what kind of feedback, what kind of reaction you had and uh for those of you that may not have seen it i encourage you to go to freep.com you can find it the headline is detroit's new restaurants lack diversity among patrons and that's a problem and um and uh, let's let's let Lindsay tell us uh, why yeah um so 
I guess just to kind of summarize the piece, yeah, it really was focusing on the patrons. Um, you know, we talk a lot about diversifying staffs, which is, you know, a, it's really important. And that is something that I also touch on in the piece. But just, you know, being kind of a professional diner and also being a Black woman, when I go out to eat, what I've noticed is that, you know, the inside of these dining rooms look very different um, than what I see outside of those spaces. So new restaurants that are opening in greater downtown, which isn't just downtown Detroit, which I think some people have mistaken. Um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, downtown Detroit, yes, Midtown, yes, but also, you know, Eastern Market, we're talking about um, Corktown, we're talking about, um, um, you know, j- just those out outside of outside of downtown Detroit areas, which is where a lot of these um these new restaurants are popping up. New Center is another one. Um, so yeah, just kind of, you know, walking around those neighborhoods and seeing them be reflective of Detroit, was which is 77% Black, and then walking inside and noticing that either, you know, I'm the only one, my husband and I are the only Black couple, or, you know, we're one of maybe two. Um, and so just I, I noticed that observation. I talked about that observation. I talked about the sense of sort of isolation that you feel when you are a minority in a space um, and then explored some ways that, you know, potentially we could start to change this pattern or, or change this behavior and, and exploring why this is the behavior, you know. Um, and so I offer I talked to some some local experts. I talked to some chefs, some restaurant workers. Um, I talked to someone at New Detroit who obviously is in the activism space. Um, and yeah, in terms of, of response, I think what's really interesting is that it is a polarizing subject. So it really has been at least the sense that I get is that it is kind of 50 50. I really am finding um, a lot of people, particularly people of color who are like, Absolutely. I'm, you know, experiencing the same thing when I go to these restaurants, either I'm the only one or one of two or one of three. Um, And then I'm getting the other side. That's why are we talking about race in the context of food? Just stick to, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the the LeBron reference, just dribble. Right. It's like just write about food, Um, which, you know, I think is. a misguided response because my job really is to survey the dining scene here and yes that's about new restaurants and all of the great things that are happening in the restaurant scene but it's also being observant and talking about things that are you know maybe something to to explore and things that we could kind of you know improve on uh so yeah that kind of was the the gist of the piece you know um this this piece really um it came out in the Sunday paper a couple of Sundays ago, and I it's a long piece, um, and it's just expertly reported and sourced, and there's a lot of personal um, reflection and introspection in this piece. This is a really brave piece. I mean, I, I'm sounding like a shill for the free press, but this is a brave piece. It was our centerpiece on Sunday to publish but also for Lindsay to write. It's not easy to write about race. Very few people like to do it. You get so much blowback. And you're saying it's 50-50, Lindsay. I'm guaranteeing you your email was 80% negative, probably. I think they had to shut off the comments on the story. 
Um, it's hard. I mean, when I've written about race before, it, it's even the slightest little thing you write about, it's people become, you know, agitated and why are you doing, you know, people are uncomfortable with this. It's a bold step to be able to, to, to do this, you know, and that, that piece, and you referenced it, that, that one line early up in the story with my black husband as my usual dinner companion, our table for two often sits like a life raft in a sea of white diners. And this is not, if you haven't read the piece, it's not black and white. That's not really what this is about. It's about reflecting the community in, that you serve. Um, and Lindsay talks about a lot of different people in the community, you know, and not just black people, but white owners. And uh, I think, I believe uh, Muslim owners or uh, Middle Eastern owners. Um, and, you know, it is important to reflect your community. I mean, you're talking about race. Well, yeah, I mean, food is culture. You know, and the city is, as you said, 70%, 70%, you know, overwhelmingly black. Who is it serving? You know, and you get into a lot of different aspects of how does that change beyond just the wait staff and the front of house people, you know, ownership opportunities. Um, I think there's a program, you said there's some kind of five-day program with, you know, uh, people working on, um, you know, helping people get into ownership and, and restaurateurs and having real stakes in the process. Um this was just a fantastic piece, and, and I hope that we got so much response that we're going to keep doing stuff like this. And frankly, listeners, Lindsay's one of the few people who could do this piece. Um, so I'm glad you did it. I hope you feel encouraged to do more of it, Lindsay. Yeah, thank you for saying that. That means a lot, you know, especially when you do get the influx of um, people who aren't too happy. <laughs> it is nice to hear that, you know, there are folks who appreciate it. And yeah, I think that... I think that was my biggest, um, I guess, I, I don't want to say challenge, but but maybe challenge in reading the comments. Um, like you said, we didn't have comments on, on the story, but seeing the discussion on Facebook and on Twitter and, and social in general, um, I think the, the, the challenge is that there are a lot of great questions that people are asking. You know, there's a lot of uh, um, construction, excuse me, constructive conversation that's happening. And there are a lot of questions that I would love to answer. And I didn't get a chance to answer those questions in this piece. I think the piece that's missing is the why, you know, why is this pattern happening? Why are black diners not stepping into these spaces? Um, you know, I think there, there's a lot there to explore in terms of the why. This piece really was just one, me sharing the observation and two, me giving some really basic surface level um, tips on what restaurateurs today and restaurateurs who are thinking about opening businesses in the future can sort of just consider, you know, before they open their business. And for restaurateurs who have spaces now can think about to just kind of maybe be a little bit more attractive to people of color. And I know that those are really um, basic tips right now. And there are more um, there, there's more conversation that needs to be had that's, you know, more systemic. We didn't talk about income disparities here. We didn't talk about a lot of barriers that keep people of color out of these spaces. And so I think there are some readers who've responded to that, like, hey, well, you know, we didn't talk about the fact that um, these restaurants cost, you know, upwards of $30 for a plate. And it's like, ex yeah, exactly, which is why we need to, keep this conversation going. And I do want to, you know, do um, more pieces in the future that that go a little bit more um, in depth. So yeah, the conversation doesn't end here at all. No, Lindsay, I think that was the thing that, well, there are a few couple of things that 
that struck me the most, and and that's the most obvious one, right? The systemic and infrastructure issues, the disparity in income, uh, the poverty levels in the city, all of that sort of thing. Right. It's obviously the underlying, I mean, 300, 400 years of history, right? So that's all playing out in these dining rooms. Um, there, there are a couple thoughts. One uh, on food that I want to ask you about in, in a little bit and the idea of appropriation and because that was a really interesting balance in your story. And I don't remember the person's name who talked about this, but sort of leaning into trying to figure out the, the palette of the community you're in versus not wanting to come in and appropriate. And that, and that's a really tricky, tricky lines, tricky space to navigate. And I want to talk about that in a minute, but first I'm curious personally for you, the difference. So I don't know if you've been up North to Petoskey say, or Traverse City, or somebody, or some, or some place like that, where it's a largely white community, and you go into a restaurant, and you and your husband are the only black couple, and how that feels, versus being the only black couple in a largely black city. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great point. That's expected, right? We, you know, I haven't been, I haven't traveled up north too much, but I've definitely been in, you know, cities and spaces that are predominantly white. I remember my husband and I took a trip to Maine once and we kind of decided we would just venture, you know, on, you know, off the side of the road, there was this sort of like trailer that was serving um, breakfast and we thought, oh, we'd get an omelet. And we felt so uncomfortable in that space because it was, it was, so I can't say this in a better way but it was so white that they looked shocked that we were there you know they looked uncomfortable like where did you come from why are you you know it, it there are still places that are very um very very segregated and so you you know that's expected but here in a city and that's what I was trying to uh, get across in this piece is that in a city that is predominantly black to to become the minority just as soon as you cross a threshold is strange it it just is and you know i think i've had some um uh because this piece is personal i have had some you know emotions that have come up since the release of the story um but but since that piece came out i've stepped into restaurants here and looked at my husband and say how can anybody disagree you know, you just look at the room and you see we went to we went to dinner, you know, over the weekend and we were the only black people in the space outside of one black server. Where, where, and I just was like, where was it, if you don't mind? Um, I don't want to call out the space because they're actually doing a really good okay. job. But 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 it's uh, a, a place in Eastern Market. Um, and I know, again, there are there are barriers on on both sides, you know, restaurateurs. I don't want to take away from the fact that restaurateurs are having a really tough time just running a business right now. Right. Period. And so um, some of these larger um conversations are things that just aren't front of mind for them, which is also why I thought it was really important to cover this story now, um, because a lot of people are kind of building from the ground up and have the opportunity to sort of write their own rules. And as they're, you know, going through this labor shortage, um, maybe there are ways to be a little bit more innovative, just, you know, just to get anyone in the door, you know, maybe you could start to um, pull from communities that you wouldn't otherwise pull from, uh, uh, it, you know, in a normal year. Um, but yeah, you know, I just, I, I just look around and say, you, you can't ignore that this is strange. 
No, it, 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 go ahead, Carlos. Yeah, yeah it's sorry. um, yeah, I, you know the 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 thing, and and as you said, Lindsay, I think the great thing about this is it's it's starting a conversation, and you know, this as soon as I read this piece, you know, it's one of those pieces to me that I turned to my wife and said, you got to read this, you know, and it's long, but you got to read this, you know, you got to carve aside some time. And, and that's the best I think you could ever hope for any kind of story is telling somebody you have to read this. Um, and the interesting thing that, and I know I don't, I'm, you know, it's not fair for you to ask, to ask you to come up with the, you know, solution to this. Like you said, this is the beginning of a conversation, but some of the interesting things I thought that they touched on that the people you touched on that you talked to in the story were, um, that one of them, uh, uh, Kiki Loya, he's a food and labor activist, um, or she, I'm just a lady, um, said she's not asking for restaurateurs to create like a soul food restaurant. That's not what they're talking about. Um, and so that's a tricky, that's a tricky game, I think, to, to give the community what they want. But what does the community want and what is the community and actually, Detroit's becoming less black. It lost 100,000 black residents over the last census from 2010 to 2020. Still a lot, overwhelmingly black. But it's changing a little bit. The demographics becoming more Hispanic, more Asian. Um, and then, you know, one person said, the Thor Jones, the general manager at Fria, said, you know, there's a lot of influential black people who could pack the restaurant three times over but what do those people want? You know, what do influential black people want? You know, like what is I mean, because cuisine isn't one thing, you know, food is not. And and when you talk to um, uh, what was the restaurant over on Gratiot? Um, um, de, uh, oh, de uh, Saffron de Trois. Yeah. Saffron de Trois. And there's a whole mix of food there. You know, right. it's African. It's French. It's I mean, there's a lot of different things. You know, the palates are complicated. And so as you said, they're having a hard time having finding labor, finding that sweet spot, you know, in the, you know, in the food service, you know, industry, in the restaurant industry to be successful and then trying to figure out what do the what does the community want, you know, um, and who's going to come to the restaurant to buy these 18, 20 dollar dishes. Um, I'm sure that's really challenging, but I love that that conversation is happening you know, I, I hope that you pursue this more and there's some kind of another cool like roundtable or something where people get involved. And you I think you said you sold yourself short saying you scratched the surface. Man, you went deep on this. I mean, this is some interesting. <laughs> maybe you didn't go into the economic thing really deep, right. but you went into so many parts of the, the fabric of, you know, the community. Um, so you could not help but be fascinated by this story. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I think what what's interesting, and I've had this response from a few people, is that um, you know what what I did was I had Saffron de Trois just as sort of a case study, just as a a living, breathing restaurant in Greater Downtown Detroit that seemed to have done things. I don't even want to say a right way because I mean there is a right and wrong, but there are a lot of different rights and there are a lot of different wrongs. I think um, he did things the right way for the resources that he and and the the situation that he was operating within, right? So he owned his building for a few years, which gave him sort of a leg up to kind of have access to a, to the community and was able to. Um, 
But you know, that's another thing. Some people do own their spaces for some time before opening, but they still don't engage the community. I think what what he did well was that he actively did um, engage the community while he was there, even before opening the restaurant, right? So so it was a, a case study of someone who did a nice job. But I also don't want to... I don't want people to walk away and think that I'm saying do what he did and you will be successful Um, because, you know, it is a restaurant that has a Moroccan influence. um, And and that's, you know, if you ask the community and said, hey, you know, what would you guys like to see? Chances are they probably didn't say I'd love Moroccan, you know, but it's more about flavor profiles. It's more about, you know, if if a vast majority of the community says, you know, I love soul food and you know that soul food flavors or or even just the concept of soul food in general is comfort food. Right. It's filling. It's flavorful. It's, um, uh, uh you know, rooted in history, you know, then I think that you can, you can pull pieces of that information and bring it into your space. And that doesn't mean um, throughout the entire menu, even it could just be one menu item, right? It could just be one special, it could be, um, you know, one night, you know, one night a month or something that you do that includes, you know, a a dish that that people would get excited about. So um, I wanted, there are some people who took that case study the wrong way and thought I was saying, do this and you will be successful. But the actual takeaway tips of the piece are, be mindful of the community that you're stepping into. Speak to the people who live there just to just to engage them, right? Just to know who they are and what they're interested in and consider that in any way you can. Be mindful of programming and think about ways that those those uh, that information that you got from the community could inform potential programming. Um, be mindful of keeping your kitchens and your front of house and your you know your front of house and back of house um, diverse as much as possible. Um, I feel like I'm missing one more tip, but but those were more of the 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 actionable, tangible you know. Oh, and, and just make sure that when you are hiring front and back of house workers, that you're uh, treating them well and that you are, um, you know, you don't you're not um, they're not facing microaggressions and they're feeling welcome and they're feeling supported and they're not feeling sort of outcast, just as I may be feeling outcast as the diner. So those were really sort of the takeaways. And, yeah, definitely the conversation is 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 going to continue for sure. When you when you talk about the uh, the food and what it, you know what is it that how do you serve the community, it reminded me of the you know you can't ask the customers exactly what you want. Henry Ford once said something like, uh, if, "If I ask customer my customers what they what kind of car they wanted, they'd ask for a faster horse." Um, <laughs> so yeah, you can't go by that alone. But but just one thing, and I, I you know I just always when I have guests who come into Detroit, you know, for sports writers who are traveling, whatever friends or something or family. And when they say, when we're downtown and we're like, okay, let's go to a restaurant, they expect to go to a soul food restaurant. Like, is there a great soul food restaurant we can go to? Well, there's Wright & Company, Salt and Standard, there's the Cuban place, there's, you know, all these other, you know, Flowers of Vietnam, all, you know, like there's, it's like there's no great, but but there's a way to probably do that, right, artfully and and elevate the cuisine and do, and, and it doesn't have to be one thing, like, like Saffron de, de Trois you know, shows. Um, I hope that, I hope that 
something like that will happen. Um, it's tricky, right? But but I also love how the guy who owns Saffron de Trois, it's up on Gratiot. It's next to like a Little Caesars and an O'Reilly Auto Parts. You know, he's not paying downtown Detroit rental prices. That probably gives him a little bit of flexibility, probably to pay staff a little bit better and not have to make, not have to charge, you know, 22, 25 bucks, whatever it is for a, for a dish. Well, I mean, it's interesting, Lindsay. I'm curious what you think. Obviously, there's soul food joints all over the city. And by the way, um, Jamel Hill, former free presser, who's become a, a you know, well-known cultural sort of uh, commentator uh, nationally, um, tweeted. Uh, I, I can't remember if she posted on Facebook or tweeted your piece. And it led she to, tweeted it. Yeah, yeah. And it led to a really interesting conversation among a lot of former Detroiters who come back to see family and talk about the development downtown and how they have the mixed feelings they have about it, right? They love seeing it in some level because it's the new buildings or the restored buildings. And they, but on the other hand, the spaces and it's largely white folks downtown. And so the, the, the conflict that they, that they feel within, and it made me think of, I mean, it's, it's true for the, for the restaurants too, right? It's, it's just, you, you've tapped into a, a much um, larger conversation about gentrification in, in a way and, and who's city. And I guess this leads me to my question, this idea of downtown Detroit, I think for metropolitan Detroit, for Southeastern Michigan, the downtown Detroit is everyone's that's the, that, and when I say everyone's, I mean, I think a lot of white people f- think that way about downtown Detroit and they separate it out. Like it doesn't belong to Detroit. It belongs to Michigan. And that's not fair. I don't think that's fair, but I think that's I think that's kind of how it works. Whereas the neighborhoods are Detroit's, and I'm curious what you you think of that sort of delineation in people's minds, and and how and whether that's problematic or not. Yeah, um, that's a good question I, because I I don't want to I I don't believe that we should be. Um, creating a a message of exclusion, right? I'd like to think that it is all for everyone. And with that same, you know, if that's the message, then that has to be the message inside the space and outside of the space. And it has to be, you know, it has to be on both sides. So if you're saying that, you know, downtown Detroit is for everyone, and that is true, then that has to mean when we recognize that Black people aren't there, that you know, then something's wrong. If it's for everyone and they're not there, then what does that mean? It's not actually for everyone, right? So I'm actually all for the message that, you know, Detroit is for everyone, but then that has to be true. You know, it's kind of like, I think about the phrase, you know, when they said um, uh, Black Lives Matter, right? It's like, all lives can't matter unless Black Lives Matter, right? So it it, it kind of feels similar to that where it's like we can't say it's for everyone and everyone not be represented so or or then be angry that this conversation is happening to make sure that everyone is represented you know um i think that's sort of that's sort of my take on that oh and that and and that's a great point the other the other point jamel made and i think she's right it's based on my, my experiences too is that we're still really segregated here and 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 it's reflecting downtown right i mean you're talking about soul food you, you, I assume you've been to the South. You spent time in the South. You go to Atlanta, for example. I, I lived in Alabama for a while, and, the, and I think we've talked about this before. The, the, you, go, you walk into a meet and three, and it's fifty-fifty black to white. It's just, 
it's just not that way here. And it's, you know, so, so downtown Detroit to me reflects, and I think Jamel made a great point, larger uh, issues of segregation here that I, that we don't talk about a lot. Yeah. You know, so Thor Jones, who Carlos mentioned earlier, was one of the people I spoke with in the piece. So he is the general manager at Freya, but he's also um, the person who operates uh, full hands in, full hands out, which was that training session that we talked about. Um, He's actually from Atlanta and, and worked in Atlanta, and he drew a lot of not even comparisons, but a big contrast between Detroit and Atlanta, whereas you would think that it should be very similar because it's a predominantly black um, big city. Uh, But what you see in Atlanta is a lot more diversity. You do see a lot more sort of commingling. You can't go into a space without seeing a black person. You can't go to a restaurant without seeing black people. Um, Whereas here, that's not the case. And again, I think that's something that is for another piece, but explore the why 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 is there this um this huge disparity and this huge segregation that's happening uh in detroit whereas you know it's not happening in other cities i think what was cool about jamel hill's tweet was that you know she is someone who has local connections and local experience but she's obviously on a national uh scale at this point she has over i think it was 1.4 million followers on twitter which is uh where she shared the story and so the responses that we saw to her um to her tweets were really interesting because I think she drew like-minded people to her own experience, right? So they were probably either former Detroiters who are living in bigger cities or people from bigger cities who have visited Detroit or who are interested in Detroit. And a lot of the comments that I saw there were kind of drawing similarities to, yes, we have, we've had the same, you know, I've noticed the same thing in Cleveland. I've noticed the same thing in Cincinnati. I've noticed the same thing in, um, I want to say maybe Baltimore was one of the cities. So I think what's interesting is that um, as much as people try to deny that it's happening here, Detroit is kind of following the trend of gentrification, which is happening across the country. Right. So uh, that that being said, I think it's just um, an issue that is definitely worth exploring because it's a part of a larger conversation. Um, I thought it was cool to see that on, on her on her page. No, for sure, absolutely, and 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 this is another segment, and we need to get you back on soon because there's so much to talk about here. But you're right; you're talking about Atlanta and then Washington D.C., which have the two largest black middle class populations in the country. Detroit's black middle class population, by and large, or not a big chunk of it, is outside the city, right? And that's where you see more mixing up in Southfield and and areas in there, and that, and we can. And I can remember going to Sweet Lorraine's 25 years ago, and it would, the crowd was a lot more mixed then in, in, in spaces like that. So economics absolutely is is a huge, huge component of this. And I'd love to – Carlson, I would love to have you back on. We can talk a lot more about that. There's there's way too much to talk about for one segment. But we, we, we thank you for for coming in and uh, giving us your time. And maybe next time we can get some restaurant recommendations. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I'm always I'm always happy to give you recommendations. Okay, okay. well, th- it was a, it was a great piece, an enlightening piece, a, a very you. thoughtful piece, and an important piece. And um, thank you. Thanks for thanks for taking the time, Lindsay, and we'll we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. I I appreciate you taking the time, and I'm glad you I'm glad you got something from that story. Absolutely. We will be right back with uh, more free press sports with Carlos and Sean. 
Hello, I'm Phil Friend, the host and producer of Spartan Speak, a podcast collaboration between the Detroit Free Press and Lansing State Journal focusing on Michigan State sports. Each week, I'm joined by the OGs of the MSU podcasting game, free beat writer Chris Laurie and LSJ sports columnist Graham Couch, as we discuss and dissect the latest sports news coming out of East Lansing. Not only is Spartan Speak one of, if not the longest-running MSU sports podcast out there, you won't find a show with two people as clued into the Spartans as Chris and Graham, each of whom has spent a decade-plus covering MSU and bring years of institutional knowledge and insight to the podcast. And once in a while, they'll let me throw out a take as well. Along with discussing the latest news, we'll break down the Spartans' last game on the hardwood and the gridiron. What went right? What went wrong? Jet sweep. Again? For both Mel Tucker and Tom Izzo, get you ready for the next game, make predictions, and so much more. We can also guarantee at least one reference to Kalamazoo every podcast. So if you haven't already, download, subscribe, and listen to Spartans Speak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or on your podcast app of choice. Welcome back to Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean. Carlos, uh, it's time to talk some basketball. Are you okay with that? Are you up for that? You need a box of tissues? We talk basketball every episode. You you somehow like say we're going to talk about hockey. We don't talk about hockey, and we switch to basketball. You magically always like really? pull a judo okay. move. I, I don't know, man. I just uh, it it can't always be hockey and golf, right? Did you not listen to the segment we just had? It can't just be golf. And hockey. We got to talk a little basketball and football, too. <laughs> Have we ever talked about golf? Oh, man. I, I don't know if Amari likes golf. Anyway, let's, let's, get, let's get Amari Sankofi and our, uh, our fabulously talented young, yes, Amari Young, uh, beat writer for the Pistons. He's getting older, though. He just got a little older. He, 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 he did get a little All right. Let, let's get into this because, uh, yeah, we, we want to we get your thoughts on – and you can, you can – say if you think Detroit got uh, screwed over a little bit with the bad lottery luck, but I, I don't know. We don't we don't necessarily need to revisit that. They had the number one pick last year. Who do you like at number five for the Pistons? How about let's, let's start there. Who should they take? Sure. I, th- I think number five is a bit of a – it's a weird spot for them because I, I, ideally you end up with one of the big um, – the power forwards, whether it's Jabari, Chet, or um, Paolo, and they can't get them. Uh, if it were me, I would probably go for an upside swing. So that's either Shaden Sharp or uh, Jaden Ivey. Uh, like I think King, King and Murray, I think King and Murray makes sense there too. Uh, just getting a guy that you know could play because I have no clue if Jaden Ivey or Shaden Sharp would rather be above average starters. But uh, they need a secondary guy next to Kate. You know, I don't know if anybody else at that spot really moves the needle enough to justify uh, just taking them there and. If you take a, a, a Ben Math or or Keegan Murray, like I think that's still fine. But I would probably go with Ivy or or Sharp if it were me. I think that's still fine. I can't believe you just said that. You were on <laughs> Keegan Murray all season. What has changed your mind? Yeah, well, that was more so in theory before the lottery. Oh, result. <laughs> I, see. I, see. I see. Like I like going. the like I like Keegan <laughs> as a player. I think he's he's really good. Um, and again, like, you know, if, if the Pistons took him, I would think that that's perfectly logical because, again, Jaden Ivey and Shaden Sharp are, uh, I think, projects, whereas, you know, Keegan Murray can play. Uh, but just from the standpoint of the Pistons need that secondary star uh, next to Cade. Um, and I do feel pretty good about Jaden Ivey being some sort of useful player. I think Shaden Sharp is still uh, a lot more theory at this point, given that we haven't seen him play 5-on-5 five five above high school competition. Uh, but either way, just get the athletic wing, get the guy that um, 
is the athletic counterpart next to uh, Cade Cunningham and get a guy that maybe by the time you extend him in three years, uh, he's playing at an above average level and you could kind of see him being that secondary guy that this team needs. Now, now Omari, the uh, shade and sharp, right? Like he is a big unknown, right? But that shooting motion, it's so weird. I mean, like even Sean, Sean considers himself kind of a blend of like Naismith, Wooden and Phil Jackson. I don't know if Sean <laughs> could fix the shooting motion. Like, isn't that just kind of hard to watch? I mean, is he, is that gonna, is that going to work in the NBA? That popping shot with no, like kind of like lob, no backspin shot. Is he going to be able to get away with that? You know, so I was a little shaky on his uh, shooting as well. I think he shot like 36 or 37% in that Nike circuit uh, last year. And I mean, that's pretty good. Um, but just from talking to some people in, in Chicago last week, a lot of evaluators feel pretty good about it. And I think they look more so at just his footwork and his balance. Um, you know, like the mechanics you can refine, you can fix. But uh, and even myself personally, like you look at a guy like Tyrese Halliburton, people were worried his shot wouldn't translate. And, you know, he's getting it off just fine. Um, you know, I think I think Shaden Sharp will be able to figure it out. Um, but I would say just more so just for people in Chicago talking to who have done this longer than me. A lot of them felt pretty good about it. So that's kind of what I base my evaluation on. Uh, they just kind of look at the footwork, the balance and the shot, how quick he gets to it. And they see it as, as something that can translate to the next level. Uh, and more so for Sharp, I think you compare it to the alternatives where you have a guy in Jaden Ivey who shot uh, around like 36%, um, but his percentage fell off towards the end of the year. I think his last 10 games, he shot like 25% last 10 or 15 games. Uh, then you also have Ben Bapterin, who's probably the best shooter of the three by a significant margin, but does he have that same upside? Uh, you know, with Sharp, I think I feel good enough about the shot to where if you're the Pistons, you can take him and maybe in a couple of years, he kind of becomes that athletic 3 and D guy you want next to Kate. Okay, Omar, a, a couple of thoughts here. First of all, uh, your your guy, A.J. Hogard, I watched <laughs> courtside stay in front of Jaden Ivey and give him all sorts of trouble. I'm not saying that you shouldn't drive him because of that, but it's just sometimes it's not just about the, the, the quick twitch, right? And let's just stay with that theme for a second because I'll get back to Keegan Murray and think about I, – I, I know people worry about him a little bit because of the – you know, vertical that's not 45 inches and the lateral movement and all that sort of thing. But positionally, he knows what he's doing. And he got, he, he improved so much from his, from the year before to this past year. I, I just, I just, I'd like guys like that. Look at the NBA playoffs right now. You're watching the Warriors and the Mavericks, for example, and Luka Doncic, who, I mean, I, I, look, I understand he's an outlier, but Andrew Wiggins, who plays for the, the Golden State Warriors, has guarded him pretty well but mostly with athleticism and speed and so forth. On the other hand, you were at the game. I was at the game when the Mavericks came to town a couple of months ago, six weeks ago, and you saw Cade not just rip Luka a few times, but anticipate where he was going. He bothered Luka more than anybody I've seen bother Luka in a while. And I know that was a small sample size. They weren't one-on-one the whole game. But I think we get we get wrapped up sometimes in all that quickness and athleticism. And can they check? Can they check? I don't know. I just Keegan Murray has a little bit of that to me. I'm not saying, you know, he's he's going to be Cade. Cade's got incredible defensive instincts. But I mean, what, what's your thought on that? Uh, just on on how Keegan could be defensively, or just yeah, that athleticism is overrated. Yeah. Well, yeah. Those those two things because they go hand in hand. 
I agree to an, an extent for sure. And I think Keegan, like, yeah, he'll be 22 next season. But you look at a guy like Desmond Bain, uh, you know, his age was the biggest knock on him, even though he was a lifestyle shooter and pretty good uh, playmaker. And uh, defender. Yeah. And, and defender, you know, in college for four years. So it's like, well, we know for a fact he could play, but what's his upside? You know, but that he, by year two, he's averaging 17 points a game. He's knocking down like 43% of his three-pointers or whatever it was. Still defending well, still playmaking pretty well. And he's like the perfect backcourt bait next to Ja who is that electric athlete. Um, and, you, and you also look at, at Jaron. You probably don't look at Desmond Bain being the third best player on a contender when you draft him 30th overall, 29th or 30th, whatever he was back in um, 2020. Uh, but then three years later, he is exactly what he was advertised to be. And I think you kind of realize, I think we overrate. Um, yeah, I think we overrate athleticism. I think we underrate just being able to play. Uh, most teams are not, from top to bottom field with like these top tier athletes, right? Like they're just like, you look at most of these rosters, they're just guys that could play. I mean, Giannis of course is one of the most absurd athletes in NBA history, uh, but Chris Middleton, pretty good athlete, but a guy that could play brick Lopez, pretty good athlete, but a guy that could play Drew holiday, a guy that could play. Like these are all just above average players. So really you only need a handful of those athletic types. Uh, I think for the Pistons specifically, given that they already have Cade, you have Sadiq, you have Isaiah, all guys who can play. Uh, but I do think the Pistons in some ways were limited by not having that athletic type, uh, you know, just as far as transition opportunities or uh, whatever it, it, it may be. And just in this draft, you're not going to find a guy I think that checks every box, uh, which again, like if they pick Keegan Murray, I think that's a perfectly logical pick. Uh, but I look at a guy like a Jaden Ivey, who I don't think is a great fit next to K, just because Ivey is more of an on-ball than off-ball guy. Um, but you know, Troy, you know, when he was an OKC, they would go for those types of guys like Westbrook, you know, he worked out really, really well. Um, I think James Harden, like he had a lot more finesse to his game, I think, than than Westbrook did in college, but still an athletic type where you can kind of mold him and it's like if this works and that works, this guy can really become something. Uh, you know, like just Troy has been in environments where they have success with those types of guys. And uh, I think for Shada Sharp specifically, uh, you know, getting off Ivy a little bit, just because evaluators feel good about the more finesse parts of his game, that makes me think he could be a really good fit for Detroit. Ivy, I'm not as convinced. You, you mentioned Hogarth locking him up. And Ivy's a great athlete, but I don't know if he is a good enough passer and a good enough shooter for his athleticism to really be maximized at the next level, which is why I see him as a bit more of, of a project. Early on, I would expect Keegan Murray to be better than him. No, for sure. You go for the ceiling. Carlos, uh, any last thoughts here? Yeah, you know, by the way, I just want to give a plug to the Pistons Pulse. Uh, you know, it's the the podcast Omari and Bryce Simon do. And it was just fantastic. I mean, you guys had Richard Stamen on. He he made, I mean, he made Mel Kuyper Jr. seem like, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He, that guy <laughs> went into so much. De- I mean, you guys were throwing, peppering him with all kinds of questions. I mean, it was so just just wonderful. Great job, guys. Um, and by the way, there was someone in there that Bryce mentioned, some uh, truck driver who said, I wish you guys would do more than one podcast. Well, <laughs> give them a link to this podcast. You're doing two podcasts this week, Omari. So, uh, so, so good on you. But I had one question for you about that conversation. And I think that uh, Richard Stamen, um, Mavs draft on Twitter, uh, I think he, he also said, you know, um, Shaden Sharp was kind of a, a good idea, kind of a swing for the fences guy, whatever, high ceiling. You're, you're kind of indicating that too. How, but what is that if they miss, you know, I mean, they miss on Killian Hayes. If they miss again, a couple years later with another guy, what does that do to the rebuild? How much does that set them back if they, 
they swing for a guy like that and, and he doesn't pan out. So Omar, have they missed on Killian Hayes? I think it just depends on what you expected from that pick. I think if Killian becomes just a good defender, good passer, uh, shot doesn't come around. Um, maybe it leans a little bit more toward a miss just because it it sort of impacts the, the lineups you could play Killian in. Um, you know, with that said, I think the seventh pick in like a draft like that where you might, you had three guys maybe with like any all-star upside and, you know, seventh pick in that draft, maybe more similar to, you know, 10, 11, 12 and a more regular draft. Or if Killian came out of 2021, for example, probably would have been toward the back half or end of the lottery even. Uh, I think it's too too early to, to to say, but the main thing with Killian is if he can't shoot, it's going to be hard to play him in a, a lot of lineups. So that's the swing factor for him. Uh, also, Carlos, I have to give uh, Richard Slayman a shout out and uh, pass the Congress along to him. Um, but with all of that said, actually, we've gotten away from the original question. Carlos, can you repeat that question so I can make sure I answer it correctly? <laughs> yeah, what happens if they if they get sharp? You know, he's more he's the biggest unknown, right? The biggest wild card, and he doesn't work out. What does that do to the rebuild? I think it hurts. I mean, I think to to miss on on three top eight picks um, in 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 three years, uh, you know, and I, I just said Killian's still away from this, but two years in, we're still asking that question. So, you know, it's a, a possibility. Uh, that hurts a lot because, I mean, the only pick you hit, you know, in that range was the one that you literally couldn't mess up, you know, which is Cunningham at number one. Um, and I think, again, that's why you kind of go back to taking the Keegan Murray or even the Ben Batterin, who is a great athlete, uh, and shot the ball really, really well during the series at Arizona. Um, you know, like I, I, I know fans don't like hearing that, you know, but just getting guys that could play. You look back at a lot of drafts and the guys that could play are the guys that usually end up. Uh, going a, a few spots higher. You know, Desmond Bain goes higher in a redraft. Uh, Sadiq Bain and Isaiah Stewart both go higher in, in redrafts. They're the 16th and 19th picks. And they would both go higher. Uh, those are the picks that tend to win out, you know, in those swing hits. You know, fans think about Donovan Mitchell, but, you know, he stands out because he's one of the few that actually worked out. A lot of times those guys don't. Um, I was not as high on Shaden Sharp before I went to the combine. I'm like, yeah, he's a five-star guy, but you know, Emmanuel Boudier was a five-star guy. A lot of guys are, you know, five-star recruits. That doesn't mean you're going to be a good NBA player. Uh, but when I look at guys, I tend to just look at, do you have two or three skills that I feel pretty good about translating? So he's got to have the athleticism. That's pretty clear. Um, the three-point shooting, that's a swing skill. But if that's the legit and you're an athletic three-point shooter, two is to be a great defender. Uh, that makes you a lot more of a safe bet. And a lot of people in Chicago seem to think that this guy could play. He'll figure it out one way or another. Uh, but no, like if you miss two of your three, uh, you know, top eight picks in, in three years, like I think that does hurt the rebuild a lot. And that's why Keegan Murray and Ben Matherin are in play at number five and not just Jaden Ivey and Shaden Sharp because the Pistons realize if you get a guy that can play, that's always going to be good, even if a guy that went later ends up having a better career. It's all a gamble. It's all a roll of the dice. The only one who knows exactly what every player in every sport is going to turn into, of course, is Carlos, and he's not in a position to do the to do the selecting. But Pay me that GM man. money, buddy. I'll tell you everything. Yeah, exactly. Hey, listen, Omar, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, we're going to have you on soon. Let's let's have you back around the draft, or right after the draft, or right before the draft, if we, you know, if if that's all right with you, and we can talk a little bit longer. Oh yeah, no, it'll be uh, the next few weeks. will be busy for the Pistons and. Uh, the draft should be fun. So thanks for having me on as always. Looking forward to being back. Yeah, for sure, Omar. It's good to see you. We will talk to you soon and uh, we will take a quick break and be right back to hear what Carlos uh, liked about the world for the favorite thing. My name is Kerry Jr. The second. I'm a podcast producer and reporter with the Detroit Free Press. 
and now the host of Freep's new weekly podcast, On the Line. Our job is to understand the issues and the people that the issues affect in our state and region and tell the news. I want Detroiters, I want Michiganders, I want Metro Detroiters to hear themselves and maybe get a sense of peace in this podcast. Maybe not in the topics we're covering, but in the sense that we're the Detroit Free Press. And you can come here to know what's happening and trust that we're going to tell the truth, give you the facts, and do it authentically. We're going to give you the voices that are in those areas, whether it be in Owasso, whether it be in Petoskey, whether it be in Birmingham, Warren, Gross Point, Southwest Detroit. You know, we're going to give you what it sounds like to be there. So every Friday in your feed, wherever you get your podcast, when you press play, we want this podcast to sound like home. We want it to sound like Michigan. We want it to sound like Detroit. I think that's all I got. So let the journey begin. Welcome back to Free Press Sports with Carlos and Sean. Carlos, what is your your favorite thing? My favorite thing, Sean, is I think it's a lot of people's favorite things. Um, is last week, uh, I we we sat down sat down with my wife and we booked our vacation. Uh, we usually take like a one week kind of little extended week vacation in the summer, and um, it was just my favorite thing to book that we're going up. We we always we haven't been there for a couple of years because of COVID, but we're going to Mackinac Island, go to Petoskey, we eat at the old. Uh, Hemingway's uh, old haunt city grill and we head up to Mackinac for a week or so with the kids um it's just a blast but it's a, there's just nothing better than reserving your hotel room the only thing slightly better than that is sending your out of office email notification that don't ever try to get a hold of me while I'm on vacation so uh that was my favorite part it already feels like summer by doing that so uh it, it just boosted my spirits for uh, for a few days after doing that that's great. Will you take your laptop? A- absolutely not. And I barely even look at my phone when I'm on vacation. Okay. Yeah, I always make that mistake of taking my laptop. My favorite thing is uh, being back, actually. You know, I had a nice break. Um, you got to see my, my boy out in a different city and go to dinner together. That was that was really great. But it's nice to be back. It's nice to be back with you, Carlos. It's nice to be back with Andrew, who was pretty quiet today. I'll, maybe we didn't address him. Correctly, he's taking over the show. By the way, he's deciding what we're going to talk about. I mean, it's unbelievable. But uh, so he might as well start talking. You know what I mean, Carlos? But no, it's it's, it's going to be it's going to be free press sports with Andrew featuring Sean and maybe Carlos. So oh no, nice. no, not featuring with occasionally Carlos and once in a blue moon Sean. Yeah, that's what it's going to be. By the way, uh, we have not mentioned Anjanette Delgado, and so that's not my favorite thing that we've, uh, that we've uh, waited. Uh, We've waited so long to do that. But uh, in any case, yeah, it's good to be back. That's my favorite thing. It's good to see you, Carlos. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I missed you last week. You know, I, I was a little hole in my, my heart. You know what I mean? I could, I yeah, could feel it. a little, little. And it's, yeah. it's, it's mending up a little bit today. So thank you for that. Good. I, good. I, yeah. Me too. I don't want you to shed a tear, but uh, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's, been, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. All right, Carlos, let's, uh, who do we need to thank? We need to thank Andrew Hammond, who produces this show, and uh, obviously starting to do a whole lot more than that. He's just going to take over the show. We need to thank Kirkland Crawford, the sports editor, uh, Anjanette Delgado, who's the uh, executive editor and also the executive editor of this podcast. We want to thank Peter Biden. Executive Bajan. producer. Producer. See, we're going to get in trouble. Yeah, producer, editor, it, it, it technically means the same thing, kind of, right? You're, you're Queen over, of the world. You're overseeing people that are... Um, you know, a pain in the butt. 
who think they're creative. How about that? <laughs> that, 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 that? Yeah, that's her job title. I want to thank Peter Botti, the um, editor of the Free Press. We want to thank uh, you for spending some time. We're sorry uh, we missed you last week, or we were out last week, but it's good to be back. If you like us, uh, you know, give us a, give us a rating wherever you find your favorite podcast at Apple, Spotify. Carlos, I think, is starting his own platform, a little Elon Muskie thing going on there. So maybe when he releases that, you can find us there too. We'll see. I don't know what it's going to be called, but uh, in any case, thanks for spending a little bit of time with us this week, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>